Open your Bibles and turn on your brains. It's time for the Think Theism podcast. So we just got done with what may be the longest Ratio Christi meeting in recorded history, well over 90 minutes. And looking back at it, we realized that there are uh, several places where either we, we didn't do a very good job answering a particular question, or maybe we left uh, some, some room for misconceptions. So we thought it would be a good idea to sit down together and go through some of the points of the meeting that may have been confusing or need some clarification. So basically, you know, we went through three major questions. The first being uh, the age of the earth or, or of the universe. The second being the relatedness of life. And the third being the mechanisms for biological diversity. So I'm going to go through these one by one and hit some of the areas that I think need clarification in each of these uh, sections of our presentation. So I think the first place that was not particularly clear was the discussion of the historic calculations of parallax. So I didn't do a very good job going through this. So could you fill us in a little bit more on the history of this parallax measurement and, and what that really means? A parallax is uh, a geometrical uh, phenomenon where if something is close in your field of view and something is far away in your field of view, as you move from side to side, the object that is closer to you appears to move much more quickly than the object that is further away. Uh, we see this phenomenon all the time when we're driving down the highway and the telephone poles that are right next to the road appear to go by at really, really quick speeds, whereas, uh, say, the water tower that's you know a couple of uh, hundred yards further away down the road, uh, it looks like it moves much more slowly. And as it turns out, you can do some simple trigonometric calculations based on the ratios of that known uh, traverse distance to calculate the distance of that further object further away from you uh, linearly. And so what we can do is take that same phenomenon and use it to calculate distances to objects that are in space from our position here on Earth. Uh, and this method has actually been used for several centuries. The very first measurement was in 189 BC, whenever there was a Greek fellow that tried to calculate the distance from the Earth to the moon. And he was able to do that during a solar eclipse. Uh, he was in a city in Turkey. He had a friend in Alexandria. They took measurements of how much of the sun was covered up by the moon. And they were able to calculate, based on the distance between their two cities, a rough calculation of how far away uh, the moon was. Turns out he was off by quite a bit. I mean, it was 189 BC, so you know, measurements weren't quite as good as they, they should be. Over several centuries, this method was refined more and more. And it was in 1600, specifically 1672, that uh, the Italian astronomer Giovanni Cassani made a major development into measuring objects that were further away than the moon. Uh, he actually did the first calculation of the distance between uh, Mars and Earth, and it was pretty accurate. I think it was within 5% of the, the actual value. But then uh, whenever it came to measuring stars, it wasn't until 1838 with Frederick Bessel who was able to fully refine the method uh, completely. And um, he was able to develop a, a pretty sophisticated way of calculating the distance between uh, Earth and stellar objects that were outside of our solar system. Um, and he was one of the first ones to calculate uh, the distance to uh, what's called 61 Cygni. Um, and that measurement is actually still largely considered accurate uh, today. So the relevance for this discussion was talking about one of the ways that you can get a rough estimate of the age of the universe is to see 
how far away something is in space. What is the furthest thing away that we can see in space? And we know how fast light travels. So we can get a rough estimation that if light has traveled that distance uh, and it's the furthest thing that we see, then the universe has to be at least that old. And in the case of the discussion, we were uh, discussing about how the furthest stars that we can see are at about uh, five to 10 billion light years, depending on the calculation. And so that gives us a low range. You know, the universe has to be at least uh, five to 10 billion years old uh, based on that simple calculation. And so the objections are usually going to be, well, do you actually know that those distances are correct? And the point of the, this conversation was just to say that the parallax measurements have been used in numerous applications and have been refined over literally 18 centuries uh, until eventually they have been pretty precise. So the distances that we go to the, uh, between our planet and distant uh, objects in space is pretty well established. So shifting gears a little bit away from the science and towards the text interpretation views, we talked about three broad categories of interpretations of Genesis. The first being the literalistic 144-hour view. Uh, the second being still a, a literal uh, kind of day-age view. And then the third being these time agnostic views. And we really blew by that idea very quickly. So could you tell us a little bit more about what some of these time agnostic views of you know, Genesis 1 actually are? This was this label, by the way, time agnostic, was something that uh, we just kind of came up with as a way of putting all of these variety of uh, different perspectives and interpretations into a bucket. Basically, all it means is that these are interpretations that, by their nature, do not comment or entail anything about the age of the Earth. They don't entail it's young. They don't entail it's old. They don't entail anything. And there are a variety, like literally thousands of different permutations. Uh, perhaps the most popular one is one that's called the Literary Framework. And uh, this one was put together by a guy named uh, uh, Henri Blochet, the French dude. And it has also been defended by the uh, reform scholar Meredith Klein. This says that the days of Genesis 1 are not temporal in any way. They're not giving a chronology in any sense. They are merely a literary framework that the author has chosen to describe the relationship of animals, uh, birds, uh, fish, and luminaries to the world that they inhabit. And so one, one classic version of this is to say days one through three are the realms of creation. Um, so you have the sky, uh, you have the earth, you have the sea. And then you have uh, the second three days of creation are the inhabitants of those realms. So day four, of course, is the, uh, the, lumina the luminaries in the sky. So they live in the sky. You have the fish uh, and the birds. They inhabit the air and the water. And then, of course, on day six, you have your land animals and uh, human beings, and they inhabit the land. And so because it's a purely literary construction, it says nothing about the age of the earth whatsoever. Another one that's out there that's fairly new and has been getting some popularity is this, call, is this uh, view called the Temple Inauguration View, which is largely defended by John Walton. He also calls it functional creationism. And basically he says that the universe doesn't really exist until it's been given a function by God. The analogy he likes to use is basically saying that if you consider a restaurant, when does a restaurant begin to exist? A restaurant begins to exist on opening day, whenever they are functioning as a restaurant, whenever you have customers coming in the door, when they're selling product, things of that nature. But how much time 
has transpired before opening day in order to get that restaurant ready to operate? Well, it could take a long time because you have to build the building, you have to buy furniture, you have to hire people, you have to do all the legal paperwork, you have to do the initial seed funding. You know, There are a lot of things that go on before the actual opening day. And so likewise, he says that uh, his, his view is that the universe existed materially for untold eons of time. Again, agnostic doesn't take a position on it. Uh, but then God says, okay, now we're going to inaugurate the universe into quote unquote, you know, functional existence. And so over a series of seven days, God uh, gives these utterances that essentially define the functions of uh, creatures. His book is called The Lost World of Genesis 1. Personally, I don't find it very persuasive, but it's been pretty popular lately. And then another view is what's called the analogical view. And this one is pretty interesting. It basically says, if you think about it, God's action in creation by necessity is going to be very difficult for us to understand because he's God. We don't act like he does. We don't think like he does. We don't work like he does. And so the story of Genesis 1 is an analogical story. Just as we human beings do all of our work in six, and, six days plus one day of rest, Likewise, God is analogically telling us how he created the world in six days plus one. But obviously, since God's action in the world is so different than ours, it doesn't necessarily map on to a true understanding of it. So uh, it basically just says it's an analogy. Now, a great uh, reference, if you want to read more on these views, as well as a, a, you know, a ton of other ones, great paper. Unfortunately, it's about 20 years old now. It was put out by the Presbyterian Church in America, and it was just, if you just Google Presbyterian Report on Creation, they go through uh, a myriad of different views, including these three. Well, not John Walton's, because that one's new, uh, but they also kind of evaluate them and sort of survey them uh, relative to the biblical text, which I would, I would recommend. And one of the things that they, that they do is, you know, they, they talk a lot about uh, the strengths and the weaknesses of them. Uh, which I think is, is it, it makes it very even-handed. Some of us are partisans that have a particular view, one side or the other. We like to say our view is the only defensible view. And especially it's the young earth creationists that are the ones that get the short end of the stick because typically people that have a strong view are usually going to say things like, oh, young earth creationism is unscientific and it's uh, you know, intellectually dishonest and you know, th things of that nature. Um, but I think that the PCA report's pretty balanced on, on that front and, and, and really genuinely giving all views a fair hearing. So on that note, obviously, young earth creationism is going to be one of the, the big debates, right? So we, we gave our own opinions, I think, pretty regularly in the, in the re recording as to whether or not that, that view is scientifically uh, defensible in any sort of normal normal view of science. But what about the Bible? Do you, do you think that the young earth view is defensible textually in, in, in the context of, of interpreting scripture in an appropriate way? Well, first, I do want to make a comment on the, the science there. One thing that if you read young earth creationist literature, they are very upfront about the fact that the science, when, when we talk about unscientific, the young earth creationist view admittedly says that they are challenging some of the fundamental assumptions, the philosophical fundamental assumptions that undergird what most people consider to be science. 
for example, uniformitarianism is the classic one, which is an assumption that says that the laws of nature that are operating today have always operated since the beginning of time without any interruption whatsoever. And they're challenging that assumption. They say that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Whenever we have this thing, oh, is it scientific or unscientific? You're having a serious debate on the philosophy of science whenever you're talking about the uh, young earth creationist uh, worldview. But that being said, as long as we're talking about scriptural interpretation, I think it's a perfectly defensible worldview, or sorry, a perfectly defensible interpretation of scripture. In fact, my own tradition is Presbyterian. Yeah, I, I'm a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, and the creation report had in it, in addition to the biblical discussion, the views of the framers of the Westminster Confession. And they admit right up front that the authors and architects of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of the ones that directly commented on creation, held to a six-day uh, creationist worldview, a pretty straightforward, literal, if you'll say, young earth creationist view. So I think that alone, that the architects of one of the founding uh, standards for you know, the Reformed Church, almost all of them held to this view. I definitely think that it is absolutely defensible from, from, from the Bible. And I think it would be foolish uh, to try and say that this is just completely indefensible. Now, that being said, the young earth creationism prior to the 1950s or even 1800s is not necessarily the same that it is today. There are a lot of ancillary things that are added onto it. But in general, if you just say, if we're just working with the Bible, that's a defensible view. I don't think it's the best personally, but it, it is defensible. So moving on to our second question, which was common descent. We really, really flew through this part, um, in, particu in particular talking about evidence for common descent. We, we basically only talked about one piece of evidence, which is uh, endogenous retroviruses. I think we covered that reasonably, but probably the other main area of discussion here is going to be the fossil record. Do you think that the fossil record provides a similar or equivalent amount of evidence for common descent as the genetic evidence like endogenous retroviruses and things like that? Uh, this was actually an editorial intentional decision to not talk about fossils. The fossil record is admittedly, by, by, it doesn't matter if you're a partisan of evolution, creation, whatever, it doesn't matter. All parties are agreed that the fossil record is by its very nature spotty, it's incomplete, and it's exigent. That means that you don't just get fossils a dime a dozen. You have to have uh, very specific things that transpire in order to, for fossilization to occur. And for that reason, it's not reasonable to really expect that we have a complete record. And that the record that we do have is not going to be necessarily all that informative. For that reason, we didn't really discuss it. For a lot of reasons, fossils are actually kind of a red herring, especially compared to the genetic evidence. I think you can make a pretty strong argument against common descent if you're just uh, talking about fossils. Because you can say that the shared morphology between organisms on Earth is attributable to common design, first of all. And you can also say that the gaps in the fossil record are evidence of creative activities by God, that you have stasis and then God intervenes and starts uh, creating things. So because of that, I, don't, I think there are plenty of counter arguments to that, and so I don't think that they're all that strong. Interestingly, the uh, evolution textbook that I have also uh, says that there are really only about two examples in the fossil record of actual, like, complete 
from one species to a, a completely other species, gradualistic change from one to the other. Um, and I, I wish I could remember what the example was, but even there, the, the point being that there is no account in the fossil record of a gradualistic change from one species to another species or from an ancestor to another one. It's, it's just not there. You wouldn't expect it to be there because of the nature of fossilization. So for that reason, it's just not uh, that particularly interesting to me. Moving on to our final question, which is the question of the mechanisms involved in you know, purported evolutionary development or change. We discussed a handful of mechanisms and, and kind of mentioned even several more uh, proposed mechanisms that, are, that go beyond the canonical random mutation plus, plus natural selection in order to achieve you know, change over time in, in living organisms. I think we talked about primarily horizontal gene transfer, what was uh, g- whole genome duplication a little bit, and transposition. What are some of the other proposed mechanisms? Because I know there are, are numerous additional ones. For that, I'd, I'd recommend there's a paper uh, from 2015 called The Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, uh, subtitle, it's structure assumptions and predictions. Uh, the author is Kevin uh, Leyland, I think is how that's pronounced. In general, there are a lot of independent fields that are all kind of working on the different sources of genetic diversity that, that are going on. Part of the reason for the extended synthesis is because of the fact of the diversity of fields. Like there are some fields in which genetic diversity arises that's not relevant in other bio, uh, biological fields. One of the biggest ones is what's called um, evolutionary developmental biology or evo-devo for short. There's also another thing which which broadly what we were actually talking about on Thursday, that whole area is what's called natural genetic engineering, where genes basically are able to manipulate their own code in one way or another. Horizontal gene transfer is another one. Uh, Transposition is another one. It's basically where the genome is more or less editing itself. There are those... There's one that I think is, it's not very powerful, but it is fairly intuitive, which is called niche construction. What this is going after is not really the random mutation part of uh, the modern synthesis, but the natural selection part. So typically it's said that random mutation occurs in these, uh, you know, in your genetic code, you just get these random mutations from out of nowhere. And then the unchanging laws of nature are what winnow down the population to its most fit. But niche construction makes the argument that some organisms actually modify their natural environment so that they create their own niche. Classic example of this is actually beavers who create their own habitations. Uh, Termites are also an example of this uh, as well. You could even say humans are like this in, in the fact that we actually modify our environment. So they would, this is more on the the edge of natural selection saying that what exactly is doing the selecting in these cases where organisms are modifying nature so that they fit in. It's a very interesting uh, proposal. Now you mentioned this whole genome duplication. I actually don't remember that being brought up. Could could you elaborate more on that? Whole genome duplication is uh, basically when you get a, an error in sexual reproduction, wherein you wind up with two copies of the entire genome in an organism. And so this happens uh, fairly commonly in plants. It's, it's actually used um, in industry to produce 
for example, seedless watermelons. I think I think things like strawberries have had this happen. And so frequently when you when this happens, if the resulting organism survives, it will be sterile. But there are rare cases where, um, uh, in particular in plants, uh, where the resulting organism is not sterile and then will go on basically to produce it, its own species that now has twice as much genetic, in, uh, genetic material as the precursor species uh, did. Now, this is a lot more difficult to do in um, animal cells, but it is hypothesized that this has been one of the key uh, enabling events in a lot of really important transitions in animal evolution. So for example, um, coincident with the origin of vertebrates, it's believed that the first vertebrates were the result of a whole genome duplication. Uh, the idea being that if you all of a sudden have twice as much genetic material, the, an organism can then rapidly change because you have all this extra information to work with um, that can mutate and change and, and result in significant, uh, significant differences to, to occur. So it's believed that that happened then. Uh, citation for that is a paper from 1999 called uh, gene and genome duplications in vertebrates, the one to four, uh, the one to four rule and evolution of novel gene functions from current opinions in cell biology by Meyer and Shardle. Uh, it's also believed that these types of events resulted in the uh, development of mastotomes. So these are jawed fish uh, and then teleosts. So uh, even yet a later um, form of fish all of which are in the evolutionary, evolutionary tree that eventually uh, leads to quadrupeds and uh, land animals and things like that. So um, I'm not particularly familiar with the, the evidence that would lead people to believe this, but probably it's, it's noticing that one class of these animals has exactly half of the the number of chromosomes uh, as the, the next class of closely related animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some, something else that we were uh, mentioning on Thursday that I don't think got enough time was with all the variety of different sources of genetic mutation, in addition with challenges to the natural selection, why is it that these sort of ideas don't really get a lot of airtime? Outside of that one meeting in 2016, uh, where it was heralded as a big deal. I, I at least haven't heard much about this. So why, why do you think it is that it doesn't seem to be sort of in the popular press that these new mechanisms uh, driving evolution are hotly debated and likely contribute much more than the standard Darwinian picture? I think some people have, have very heavily pointed out the reluctance to engage in alternatives to the kind of party line with respect to the modern synthesis because of the fear of these types of ideas being picked up by uh, people who are religiously motivated to resist you know the current modern synthesis view in biology i think that is an accurate assessment but probably not sufficient to completely explain this now, this is just my own hypothesizing, but there's a, a book from, I think, the 1960s uh, by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. 
And uh, he lays out kind of a view of the way science happens and then ultimately changes and produces new scientific theories that I think is, is very helpful and apropos in this, uh, in this circumstance. So basically, he lays out an argument that says that you have what's called kind of an ordinary science, day-to-day -day science, which is a bunch of scientists working within a model or a theory that they have been taught and they're just kind of nibbling at the edges of that theory, slowly making incremental advances and exploring what this theory that they are they believe means. And, and basically what he claims is that when you're doing ordinary science, nobody questions, seriously questions the paradigm that they're working within because the paradigm is what allows them to do their day-to-day -day work in science. But ultimately, a scientific revolution happens when a paradigm is rejected and, and scientists start trying out a, a new model to kind of completely understand what they're working on. So the most famous example of this is the Copernican revolution. And obviously, you know, this is a good example because the prior systems, so the Copernican revolution dim, uh, basically said that the sun is the center of the solar system, not the earth, and the earth orbits around the sun and so do the other planets. But the prior Ptolemaic system that was assuming the earth was the center had developed to such a point where you could accurately predict the positions of all the planets. You just had to have these weird epicycle motions. And it, so it, it, it completely described all of the observations with only, only minor discrepancies. And when Copernicus came along, did his system describe it any better? No. In fact, because of a few edge cases, it didn't describe it as well. Um, but it was radically simpler because you didn't have to use these epicycles to describe the planets. But the scientific community at large did not accept this. It basically took a whole generation of scientists dying off for this to really become the standard view. And this is almost what always happens. You have somebody come along with a new idea and they are typically not, not recognized within their field, but then you'll have maybe a few younger scientists come up, start considering that view. And then within a generation or so, most of the sticks in the in the mud, so to speak, will have have left, and 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 now you have a you know a transition to a near, new paradigm. And I think the way Kuhn talks about um, scientific progress fits very well with this observation in biology today, which is that you have all these new mechanisms that are being proposed. On the one hand, they're kind of being incorporated to the, into the old model, but still the way that the old model is talked about doesn't really have room for these new mechanisms. I get the impression as an outsider that this is a field that is undergoing these re this revolution and in a generation or so, we will have you know whatever's gonna replace the modern synthesis, the extended synthesis or whatever. So we will have gone to, from Darwinism to Neo-Darwinism to the modern synthesis to something else. But I, but I think it's gonna take time enough for the current practitioners to to kind of move on so that a new generation of people can can make some of these mechanisms more central 
to what evolutionary biology is. Because again, as an outsider, all these things we just talked about to me seem a lot more exciting and more powerful and meaningful than the way modern the modern synthesis is talked about as random mutation plus natural selection. You know, it, it doesn't really make sense that that is still kind of the central dogma, if you will. It probably doesn't help either that in a lot of ways the 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 pressure from sort of the intelligent design crowd has probably forced a lot of scientists to, or at least that culture, to be defensive of things that they don't need to be defensive of. In particular, I, um, whenever Michael Behe, about 25-ish years ago, came out with his book, uh, you know, Darwin's Black Box, which is supposed to, it, it, it's a defense of his idea of irreducible complexity, which says basically that there are these structures that cannot be formed by the successive addition of gradual accumulation of complexity over time through generations, in particular, the bacterial flagellum. He says, uh, if you are missing one part of a black bacterial flagellum, you don't have a flagellum. You just have a bunch of random goop on the side of your protoplasm. And the general response from biologists has been to try to concoct a sort of neo-Darwinian modern synthesis flavored answer to this question. If you ever read his debate with uh, Ken Miller, Miller's arguments were admittedly like ad hoc, conjectural, just super, not anywhere near convincing. But then again, Behe's arguments weren't like super convincing either, but it kind of forced Miller into this position where he kind of had to defend the paradigm even whenever Behe was presenting pretty compelling, I think, counter evidence to, uh, to some of the, the central claims of the, the modern synthesis. And so I think that, you know, just kind of to tag on to what you were saying, that the Scopes Monkey trial was almost 100 years ago now, and you had this 100-year conflict in American culture between the fundamentalists and the biologists and the scientists, and then, they've been, and then the uh, rise of the intelligent design movement as well. Now they're in the, the fight. So there's almost this batten down the hatches uh, mindset that may actually be uh, not helpful to to progress. And the inverse is that you have this situation where if evolutionary biologists ever admit that there's something wrong with the modern synthesis, you're going to end up with a lot of creationist or intelligent design people waving the flag of victory saying, look, they admit it's wrong whenever that's not the direction that, that they're going at all. They're not moving towards intelligent design or creationism. They're moving in a totally third different direction and that's exactly what happened in the with the 2016 meeting. I mean, I remember hearing about that for a year afterwards about the, you know, this idea that basically the modern synthesis was broken, right? No nobody ever mentioning that the whole purpose of the conference was actually to to discuss the mechanisms to replace it with basically. Maybe the last thing to discuss that I, that I think could use a little bit more kind of airtime, I guess, from our meeting would be this position of intelligent design. So we, we just mentioned it a handful of times, but we never really described or discussed what intelligent design is. So what is this movement and, and how does it fit into this whole discussion of origins and evolution and all sorts of things? Oh, yeah. So intelligent design is a huge, huge term. It's a giant umbrella term that can be used for a ton of different positions. It really depends on the context that you're talking about. So I think the best thing to do is to take a step back and kind of reevaluate what we were trying to do on Thursday. 
And for the most part, what we were doing was integrating two different sets of data. We had the biblical data on you know, the days of Genesis, uh, the kinds of Genesis 1, God's action and creation, things of that nature. So we have that set of data. Then on the other hand, we have this collection of data about you know, radiometric dating, distant starlight, uh, radiation from the cosmic microwave background, endogenous retroviruses, things of that nature. And so our goal was to kind of integrate these two sets of data into a coherent picture that explains the entirety of the scriptural view as uh, scriptural data, as well as the entirety of the, the scientific data. Now, that is not the goal of intelligent design. Intelligent design doesn't explicitly state anything to do with scripture. In fact, a lot of there, there are actually a handful of intelligent design theorists that are either atheists or agnostics or definitely not religious and ascribe zero credibility to, to scripture. Their goal is basically just to look over here at the scientific data and say from the scientific data, we can infer the existence of a designer. Just that alone gets you in a lot of different fields because you can talk about some people, for example, Robin Collins, who is a philosopher that has argued that we can infer design in the universe from the fine tuning of uh, the initial preconditions of the Big Bang, as well as the natural laws that our universe operates by. But Collins is himself not an adherent of intelligent design in the biological sense. He does not adhere to that view. So in the specific realm of biology, what those proponents are saying is that we can infer the activity of a designer specifically in the structures and origin of biological organisms on this planet. And there you're going to find a motley crew of a bunch of different people. You'll find creationists, young earth creationists, you'll find old earth creationists, people like Michael Behe, who accept basically the entirety of the Darwinian picture, except he just says that it was front-loaded at the beginning by a designer, so that all these highly improbable events that occurred at the front ultimately developed down the three and a half billion uh, history on earth. Um, and then you have your more like garden mill people like Paul Nelson, for example, friend of the show, very active in the intelligent design world. He's interesting because he's actually a young earth creationist, but he does not actually say that intelligent design proves young earth creationism. He just says we can make an inference to design from the scientific data as it stands, but theologically, I will accept the young earth creationist uh, view. So it's, a, it's kind of a big motley crew, but in general, what they all agree on is if we look just at the natural data and specifically the natural data in biology, we can infer the existence of some type of a designer who has been active on this planet in one way or another. Now, that's actually orthogonal, you know, it's you know, sort of perpendicular to our integrating project. And that's why I'd actually like to mention there are some creationists who disagree with intelligent design. They will agree that we are intelligently designed, but they disagree that with the intelligent design theorists, that we can actually infer that from nature using the rules of science that are currently in play. They would actually argue that intelligent design is unscientific. I, I know of a few creationists who would say that. They say, my views in, on creation are not based at all on my interpretation of science, but exclusively on my interpretation of scripture. So they would say, we interpret scripture first, and then we look at the world through scripture, um, but we can never look at the world and then try to infer a designer because that would require our uh, natural minds uh, that are tainted by sin and deception in order to make an inference, and we can't do that. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing. So I've only talked about the philosophical component of this, 
uh, and a little bit of the theological component, but there's an entire political component to this as well, where there are individuals who think that intelligent design should be taught alongside sort of standard biological theories of evolution in public schools. Frankly, I don't have enough background to really comment on the legitimacy of that or anything to that effect, but that's what gets the most attention is when these proponents say that intelligent design is just as scientific and just as legitimate as any other evolutionary account of history uh, and biology, so it should be taught in schools along with these other theories. The general legal response in the United States has been, no, that's not true, and you, you, can, you can make your own opinion on that one way or the other, but creationists, through and through creationists, are not going to make the argument that creationism ought to be taught in public schools. In, in the science class, I mean, while I'm on this tangent, uh, the general legal atmosphere in the United States has been intelligent design is creationism. Now, I think that's false, personally. I don't think that's true. But legally, they define it as close enough to creationism that teaching it in a public school authoritatively would be a violation of the Establishment Clause uh, because it would be affirming a religious uh, doctrine in a federally funded environment. So that that's a little bit of a little bit of an overview. So to bullet it all down, intelligent design is more or less a philosophical position about we can, about what we can and cannot infer from nature, about what we can and can infer with science, and about what we can and can't teach in public schools. Okay, well, I think we covered a lot of additional ground here um, compared to what we discussed in the primary meeting. So I hope that somebody finds this helpful to maybe clear up some of the misconceptions that we we left or the questions that we left unanswered. Thanks for sitting down with me, Zach. I guess we'll wrap it up now. Thanks for listening to this episode. Think Theism is made in association with Russia Christie at Texas A&M University. We invite you to join the weekly Russia Christie meetings every Thursday. The views and opinions that are expressed in all of our episodes are of the speakers only and are not necessarily endorsed by Russia Christie nor by Texas A&M University. For more information, go to thinktheism.org.